0: Hello, and welcome to episode 118 of Ricochet's Law Talk podcast. We are coming to you, as always, from the faculty lounge of the Ricochet University School of Law and Marsupial Veterinary Clinic. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter and former REO Speedwagon roadie. And I am joined, as always, by the Abbott and Costello of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU senior lecturer at the University of Chicago and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and former deputy assistant attorney general in the Bush administration. And fellas, not to draw back the curtain too much here, but I am speaking to our audience as usual from the Cenex studios in Connecticut, but the two of you and our producer are all on the Stanford campus right now discharging your various duties to the Hoover Institution, but you are not recording from the same location. Is there some kind of Betty Davis, Joan Crawford thing going on here where the two of you cannot be in the same room? If the Federalist Society had a tabloid, they'd be all over this.
1: Well, I'm going to give the answer to this. This is strictly an acoustical decision. Uh, Our professional monitor said if we're in the same room, we'll echo. The scene sounds won't be correct. So there was a forced separation. But just to show you what the pure benevolence is between the two of us, um, we were in the same room sitting at the same table with Peter Robinson doing Uncommon Knowledge Mm -hmm. earlier this morning. So we are now not only a duo with you, but we are a traveling roadshow.
2: Richard was eating all my Doritos right out of the bag. Right out of the bag.
1: Abysmal falsehood. <laughs> I don't like Doritos. Anything else <laughs> doesn't really matter. But no, I don't know what it was that I was doing, but I was doing something. It must have been something good. Well,
0: after an afternoon with Peter, I apologize that you guys have to slum it with me. But we do have plenty to talk about, not the least of which is right after we did our last show, almost a month ago, the government shutdown started. And I figured ah, – By the time that we get to the next one, we won't have this – this topic will just completely pass us by. No such luck, it turns out. So let's turn to the government shutdown and the way that President Trump is talking about the need for a border wall. Because as this has dragged on, the president has, over the course of the last month with varying levels of intensity, floated the idea that he could solve this problem without any assist from Congress – that he doesn't need Congress's consent, that he could instead declare a national emergency and in so doing, be able to enlist the military to build a wall on the border. And there's a lot that we have to unpack here. So, John, I will start with you. When the president proposes this idea, just the concept, a national emergency in the context of presidential powers, what do we mean when we say a national emergency? Is there are there sort of clear standards by which a president
2: can invoke that authority it's a great question troy and two points one if it were the president doing it under his constitutional power this would be an interesting question whether this is like thomas jefferson during the aaron burr conspiracy or lincoln the civil war fdr truman korean war and so on but he's not acting pursuant to constitutional authority it's a much easier question there is a law called the national emergencies act Which acknowledges the president's power to declare national emergency and doesn't define it. And so because of that, presidents ever since that law passed in 1978 had declared national emergencies about a lot of things that you and I probably and Richard would not consider national emergencies like a swine flu epidemic that never happened. Thank you, President Obama, in 2009. Or the expiration of export controls because a statute expired in the mid-1980s. Thank you, Ronald Reagan. These were not emergencies like we would think of in the colloquial sense, but presidents declared them, and then Congress didn't try to overrule it. And then once there's an emergency declared like that, there are several statutes which allow a president to move money to military construction and sport of armed troops so i think which would justify the construction of a border wall
0: so you think the president would be on sound footing here under <coughs> the way that we understand it.
1: Richard is that your take too no um, John and I actually disagree on this one at least in part I have no doubt that the statutory definition is broader than the constitutional definition in which emergencies would be defined in the conventional way that one sees going back to of course our favorite topic Roman law these would be <laughs> <laughs> these
3: That's, would be oh, five minutes the okay
1: invasions of foreign nations and stuff like that there's no question that this definition is broader than that, but sometimes it uses such words as essential to national security. And in all of the cases in which these emergencies were declared by Obama or by Reagan or by anybody else, it was not in the midst of an appropriation struggle between the Congress on the one hand and the president on the other. And so it was perfectly clear what the motivations were. In the modern situation, this motivational issue actually becomes much more important after cases like Hawaii against Trump, in which one of the issues that, was constantly done when the president issued his executive order, which was done pursuant to statutory authority, I might add, with very broad justifications, is you had two justices led by Sonia Mar- Sotomayor, joined by Judge G- Justice Ginsburg, saying his anti-religious sentiments on Muslims and everybody else means we don't care what the statute says, we're going to strike it down. A Briar and a Kagan come along and they say, you know, we would like to see more, but if we don't see more, we're going to agree with them. And then The only way this was cured was that Justice Roberts, Chief Justice, wrote a pretty strong opinion saying this was not a unilateral action by the president. This was something which was done um, in conjunction with key people in all the departments. Uh, they varied the list. They imitated what Obama done and everything else, and they won five to four. Well, what makes this case different from all the others is that nobody could deny the political motivation, and that becomes an alternative account as to why this thing was done in the way in which it was done. Uh, so when I to see that stuff coming in. My guess is, with the hostilities that you have in the courts, if the president tried it, somebody would dream up a standing claim. And if you find yourself one of these left coast judges out here, and you could pick the judge pretty much, or at least the circuit, um, I think it would be temporarily enjoined, at which point it would be purely a political battle. I think the reason why he hasn't done it thus far is he realizes that the H-bomb could blow up in his own hand and leave him in a very bad situation. I think you know he's talked himself into a terrible corner. Uh, what happens is Pelosi has the rhetorical advantage. She's saying we just want congressional business as usual. And what we have here is a president who wants to coerce us to do something which under the Constitution we're not required to do. So I think he loses the blame game when that comes up. So I don't think it's going to happen. They're going to both have to find a way to back off. The Wall Street Journal proposed, you give me the dreamers, I'll give you the wall. I can live with that, not that I'm in favor of the wall, but in this thing, Edward Dirksen is wrong. A billion dollars here, a billion dollars there, it soon adds up to real money. That's not the case in the current budget. $5.7 billion is not real money. It's all symbolic. And I think the Dreamers is a much more important issue. So I don't think it's going to happen. And I just hope that the whole country doesn't careen to disaster.
0: John, what do you make of the argument that some of the president's conservative critics have made that? If he were to do this, and we should be clear, as of the time that we're taping this, the president seems to have backed off a little bit. I mean that's on an egg timer, but that's where we are right now. The conservatives critics say if the president does this, then you open the door for the next democratic president to say, well, global warming is a national emergency and thus we have to have a carbon tax or we have to have cap and trade or we have to have nationwide renewable
2: mandates. How real is that specter? I have a lot of sympathy for those kinds of worries, uh, but I think we already crossed that Rubicon. There you go for more Roman history, Richard. <laughs> and the, you know, once you have had presidents under the statute declaring things to be national emergencies that are not sort of immediate, sudden, you know, sort of crises, which I think is really what you know the presidential power has been used for in the past. Then what's the difference? So, yeah, I I could see where you could say, oh, immigration or migration is actually a a process. It's not an immediate event. And so it's not a national emergency. And then that would give you some basis to say, well, global warming or climate change is not an emergency either. But the statute does not set any standards. The statute just says national emergency. It's in the president's view. And the way you answer this kind of abuse is not, I think, going to court and trying to get some judge to substitute their judgment for the president's, which which the Supreme Court has never allowed before. Um, And instead, Congress can try to overrule a national emergency or ultimately if it's an abuse of executive power, you have the funding power and even the impeachment power. But I don't think going to court and asking a court to say, oh, this is an emergency, this is not an emergency when it doesn't have access to the kind of information and judgment of the executive branch. I think that would be a serious constitutional mistake.
0: Would you be in favor of getting rid of the statute just because it's so broad?
2: No, I, I you know, I don't think the statute itself really gives the president more power, more that it recognizes it, but also that it recognizes that Congress – it's a more of like a declaration by Congress if they're not going to do anything. The real problem is not the national emergency declaration. It's the way Congress has handed over more and more authority in when a national emergency is declared in lots of areas where it doesn't seem – Necessary. That's really what's going on here. And that's not surprising. Congress loves to delegate authority to the president when things might, be, have, might have bad political consequences, might be controversial, and let the
1: president take the blame for anything that goes wrong. I don't think this is going to work, actually. Let me give a a very different sort of interpretation. Um, What John said, I think, is key and instructive, which is namely that this is an enormously broad delegation to the president to do everything utterly without standards. Uh, So what happens is all of a sudden the doctrine that's going to kick in is going to be the non-delegation doctrine, which is right now before the Supreme Court in a case called Gundy, in which the question is whether or not you could leave it to the attorney general to decide that certain. reporting obligations with respect to previously convicted sexual offenders um, can be made retroactive by the unilateral action of the attorney general. And virtually everybody on the conservative and the liberal side has said, we think in effect that this is beyond the scope of the attorney to do it on the Don Delegation Doctrine. The difference between them being that the liberals are saying, well, we do this with respect to criminal procedure, but God forbid we should do it with anything having to do with economic liberties. And the conservatives saying, hey, This is really the wedge that we can do to bring the administrative back. If one wants to say that the president can now appropriate money out of some other fund in order to deal with an emergency of global warming, uh, this really trespasses upon the appropriation powers, which in the first instance is left to Congress. It's utterly standardless into how serious this thing is going to be, what he can mobilize. I do not think that he can get away with it. I think what's going to happen is that the constitutional definition um, is going to come back to limit the scope of the statute, and you're going to have to get yourself much more in the tradition of sudden events of one kind or another. And even the swine flu case was not crazy under that standard. The Obama fear, given all the stuff that had happened in the late 1970s with the swine flu fiasco, was that a potential danger of an epidemic is at least something that's a public health crisis, and you can start to deal with. So I actually think that That Trump is going to lose this particular case. I think it's going to be new law, but the argument is going to be this is new law under a set of circumstances which we've never encountered before, and that this is more faithful to the original understanding uh, than a rule which goes in the opposite direction. Uh, I do not think that Congress can say to the president, uh, you can do anything that you want with respect to anything you have. Uh, Can he say, look, global warming is a serious problem? I'm going to drop an H bomb on, on Beijing because he's got a terrible polluters, it, it really I don't think computes. So I think John is being a bit too uh, traditional on this particular subject and I think that the new, new American ouch, constitutional law is going to be more in tune with the originalism than the sort of progressive new version of the administrative law which speaks in these very, very broad powers. And recall in the steel seizure case um, when Truman tried to seal the seize things on the grounds that the war was doing it, they held, looking at the statutory framework and so forth, he did not have, notwithstanding his role as commander-in-chief, the power to engage in that particular um, domestic um, move. So I think the historical record is more cloudy, and I also think that this case is just too weak. And as um, I speak to ordinary people, they don't know the statutes. They say the president can't just declare there's an emergency because he would like to do something. They all think there's an objective barrier that you have to cross. And he's going to lose the public relations argument for sure, even if he might, which I doubt win the legal one.
0: Richard, there is a derivative issue here, at least in the way that the president talks about this, which is right in your wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. The the border between the United States and Mexico is expansive. There are big chunks of it that already have a wall on it. But when this question has been brought to the president about the fact that there's all this territory that would have to be covered with a wall and that a lot of it is in private hands, he's sort of waved that away by saying that he'll use what he calls the military version of eminent domain. Unpack that phrase for us. Is it a meaningful one? Is there something different about the military version of eminent domain?
1: Well, I mean this is Trump law pure and simple. Uh, The (laughs) the takings clause is I think pretty clear about – um, this particular situation. There is no question that if there is a target owned by Americans, which is under attack by the Japanese, the president can seize it and destroy it, even though it's held in Japanese hands. That was the Caltech's case uh, during the beginning of the Second World War. And the logic was very simple. If we don't take it, the Japanese will take it over. You're going to get nothing from them. And then if we should win, they'll blow it up so you'll end up with nothing there. Uh, but imagine that somebody used a military version of the eminent domain and went to every steel company and every automobile company in the United States. We have a military exception to the uh, eminent domain power. We can take this stuff for military purposes without uh, just compensation. The rule has always been if you're trying to acquire inputs to run a war, um, you have to start to pay people. The borderline case, a case called Pee Wee Coal or some such title in the early 1950s, was whether or not the president could shut down a mine that was doing coal in order to divert the miners to another kind of occupation. The court actually said that that was permissible to do. Um, I actually think the case was wrong, but that's a long way from the direct occupation of land owned by private individuals. So I'm pretty sure that he would be enjoined by that. Look, the president has two kinds of law. The one that he makes up whenever he gets in front of a camera and the other, which his advisors in the OLC, Office of Legal Counsel, start to tell him. And they're really very, very different type situations. The president is always like them. And domain when he could exercise it, uh, but I think in this particular case, the clause would work against him, so I regard that argument as a, as a form of intellectual fantasy by a president who 's given to such delusions.
0: <laughs> John, this is the last question i 'll put to you guys on on this topic we 're talking about the legality of this, and a lot of this gets overshadowed, of course, by the the political drama of the shutdown. But before we leave this, let's just talk about the policy question for a moment. Is the underlying goal worthy? I mean if you had a congress yeah. that would sign off on this, is, is a wall this essential to getting immigration right?
2: You know, look, even though I think uh, a national emergency declaration could would be legal and he could access those powers, you know, there's this question of whether it's a good idea. And uh, to me, this is uh, drawing down or wasting away executive power for a purpose that's really not – a crisis or emergency, when, you know, you want to husband those resources for something really important, uh, you know, when you really need to call on those vast delegations to answer some kind of emergency or crisis. So I worry, uh, one, for that. Two, I don't, you know, despite the pictures we're seeing of the border of these uh, caravans of Central American migrants trying to jump fences and break into the country, it doesn't seem to me from what I've read that, uh, a wall is uh, really necessary as an emergency measure. Clearly, I think you need to have more security at the border. Um, that's part of being a nation state is controlling your territory, controlling your border. I'm not you know, From the, the things I've seen, it's not clear to I me mean, you need a wall to go all the way down the border of the country between the U.S. and Mexico. And, in fact, in this time where we have all kinds of new technology available, including drones and high-tech sensors and so on, you still that would be better, more cost efficient than a gigantic wall. So, I think I think the, the but the wall what it has become is this weird symbol of just wanting a tougher immigration policy, and it's preventing us from making the obvious deal, which Richard mentioned earlier, which I think is the real solution, which is more funding for border security, for cracking down on illegal immigration within the country. You know the whatever the the number is the. 14 to 20 million illegal aliens already here who are working and benefiting from lax enforcement. That's where you would want to spend the resources, I think. In exchange, allowing I think some kind of legal status for uh, the Dreamers, the people who are brought here illegally as children, uh, their parents, and some kind and people who are say are in the armed forces or uh, you know working productively in the country or in school.
1: Um, I have a slightly different view as always, but not an impossible <laughs> different one. I think a wall as a generic thing going the full length of the border, which is not covered by the $5.7 billion, is a fantasy. Uh, we have many problems associated with the illegal migration. Uh, some of them are people who overstay business, visas. Some are people who sneak through at the regulated border products by moving back and forth. That's the way the most of the drugs start to come in. And some go in by boat or come in from airlines, from some other places. Some can jump over a wall. I just don't think that it's going to work if you even tried it. I do think that Trump is right about one question, um, which is if somebody decides to break into the United States, and does so illegally by force by eluding the guards, I do not think somebody who is engaged in that kind of deliberate affront to our borders gets by his own right the ability to stay here indefinitely until his claim for refugee status, however based, is going to be done. I think what you have to do in order to get refugee status is somebody in the United States has to be prepared to give you a preliminary admission because um, they think there may be a colorable case, and then you let this thing be survived. Otherwise, what happens is going to be a massive incident Incentive for people to overrun our border lines because they managed to profit um, from their own worms. But in terms of the general question in Mexico, it's complicated as always. But immigration from Mexico proper is down to probably a fourth or a fifth of what it was twenty years ago. At the end of the Clinton administration, uh, it's basically static. There are a lot of people going back, a lot of people coming. Uh, the real risk, in some sense, is people coming up from Guatemala and Honduras and Honduras and El Salvador. The conditions could be often terrible in those countries. They make it through Mexico and they want to get here. I think the answer to that is not a wall at this particular end, but greater cooperation with the Mexican authorities to make sure that they don't make it all the way north only to be turned away uh, in vain. But in general, I think that this, the president has put much too much weight on this particular wall. I think he should recognize that the immigration problem, as we've traditionally have it, is 75 to 80 percent solved. The hard question on which John and I may disagree, I'm not even sure what I think, is you have people who are well-established as uh, illegal immigrants in the United States for many, many years. Uh, You pick them up because they've got a bad life, Do you want to deport them under those kinds of circumstances or do you want to give them some kind of a quasi-amnesty? People will not agree on that. But my own instinct is unless this problem is getting worse, I would be reluctant to upset the status quo. I certainly think it's appropriate to say if somebody has been charged with serious criminal offenses, you could require state cooperation in order to get deportation. But I don't think I would start to go after people whose only offense is essentially working under false documents and being useful and productive non-citizens in the United States.
0: Can we all at least agree that – If the State of the Union address becomes a casualty of war, this whole process will have been worth it. (laughs) If we never get another State of the Union address, that
1: would be fine by me. No, Um, I think it's wrong actually. Go ahead. My view about it is it's a powerful signal in in a number of ways. It lets the president say something about priorities where others are listening. And the other thing is the people who choose not to attend, I think, are a very powerful barometer of what the sentiment is with respect to the president. When uh, President Obama decided to go after the Supreme Court for a Citizens United decision and and Alito whispered, that's not so, Mr. President, in this stage whisper, uh, people attacked Alito and Alito wasn't there. The next year. I think that's an important way to signal the fact that if you wish to use this as a partisan platform people who are your intended targets won't show, and I think it hurts a president to make sure that there are a lot of empty seats by people on the other side because it means that you can't get any kind of bipartisan respect, let alone support. So I'm willing to endure the speech, but I got to tell you, I can't listen to it live. I read the transcript later.
0: I I was actually not planning to seriously discuss this, but now I feel the need to throw it over to John, who I cannot imagine will defend the State of the Union.
2: (laughs) Address. No, I – (laughs) <laughs> <I liked laughs> well, maybe both. It, I liked it when you know. Actually, it's interesting, right? The state of dress actually used to be sent in writing, and you know yes. who was who restored doing it in person. It, it was the the worst president in American history, John. <laughs> yeah, Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, uh, and it was part of his theory of reorienting progressive government so that it focused on the president as kind of the party leader and the leader of the nation so i don't think it'd be so bad i actually find them really boring i don't know troy's written some really boring ones i gotta say that much
0: yes but you know what uh, <laughs> the troy also has a piece out at city journal right now calling for the abolition of the state of the union so no, i'm paying I mean, no, that. really
1: really a I, I, radical I you, you mean an oral presentation
0: prepared, right?
2: right no i'd
0: be fine with the written.
2: I mean, the constitution requires you do a state of the union. It doesn't have to be a speech. It could be a report. It doesn't have to be personal. the way, history of
0: it. The history of this, and we'll, then we'll get you know back back to the stuff we can. I say just, just,
2: as long as as long as McRibs are available, <laughs> Trump. <laughs> this is what he should do. He should invite the Congress over to the white house to listen to the state of union and serve McRibs and shamrock shakes for everybody. You know, I thought about you when
0: Donald Trump had that huge spread of fast food for the Clemson football team, I thought Johnny's vote in the 20th. I, I thought
2: of me too. when I, saw that. I, got, I got hungry when I saw that picture.
1: <laughs> Look, I mean the strongest argument you guys have made anything Woodrow Wilson did was wrong. <laughs> um, By the way, he is listed generally as around seventh or eighth on the list of great presidents, ahead of such much superior presidents, including Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge, which reflects, I think, the very strong liberal bias amongst historians who are making these things. But uh, if you could say about Washington, he was first in war and first in peace. Uh, You can say about Wilson, he was last in peace and last in war. By the way, Richard, our friend Coolidge was on the other side of this, the, the brief history
0: of this, and then we will move on. It actually was initially given as a speech by Washington and by Adams. Jefferson was the one who did away with it because he he found it quasi-monarchical. It reminded him of the king addressing the opening of parliament. Interestingly enough, Hamilton agreed with him on this point.
2: Oh, and Hamilton. Stayed,
0: of all people, no uh, enemy of presidential pomp, and it stayed written until Wilson but your friend Cal Coolidge uh, along with Herbert Hoover, the namesake of the institution where you now sit – both tried to revert to the written version, and it was FDR who brought it back permanently. As well, I mean this proves it's a progressive conspiracy. I mean the pedigree right there ought to be enough to scare you off of it.
1: Well, I mean, it does scare me off of it a little bit, although I think, however, uh, when they did it, there wasn't television cleat light shining on it, and it's now amplified. And I do think that that does change the atmospheric a little bit. I'm not sure whether it's for the better or for the worse, uh, but I thought that little incident between Obama and Alito actually was a very powerful teaching moment. Now, uh, here's another thought. What we do is if the president doesn't give a speech, the opposition party doesn't get to give a rebuttal. Maybe that's the compromise. And so the president writes something – and then Miss Pelosi writes something. So That'll I don't work. have to read either.
0: That'll work for me. Or the president tweets something and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez tweets something in response. Oh, yes, And that. the long, slow slide of America the continues to 280
1: characters of tweet them.
0: <laughs> okay. I will mercifully move us on from this. And I will ask you guys, uh, beginning with you, John, we had this revelation in the press probably a, a week ago, hitherto not revealed, that in the immediate aftermath, Of President Trump firing Jim Comey as the director of the FBI. The FBI actually began an investigation into the president, what was classified as a, I guess, counterintelligence investigation as to the nature and extent of his involvement with Russia. And this, for me anyway, raises many more questions than it answers. John, just how does this work? From whence does a part of the executive branch derive the authority to decide on its own that it is going to investigate the president?
2: So it's very uh, interesting. Uh, One is a matter of process and then substance. I mean, so one is just as a matter of process, um, you know, you don't have to get the attorney general's permission or the head of the FBI's permission to launch any just sort of normal investigation. I mean, that decision is pushed down uh, lower to the special agent's in charge and so on So. It would be weird if you had a system where the presidents and the FBI had actually proved every investigation ever started by the FBI in the country. That wouldn't be practical. Um, but two, of course, there's a system and a process for any highly political, high-profile investigations like investigation of a senator or a uh, president. And so what this showed to me was just the depths of the sort of anti-Trump Uh, I think, I'm afraid, anti-Trump bias that was going on in the FBI that we've only learned about because of revelations from congressional investigations and some from uh, the White House. And I expect that the head of the FBI, Chris Wray, the new head of the FBI, is cleaning house and has been cleaning house of all the people who are involved with this. There's a second, I think, even more interesting substantive point, which is it shows um, that we have, in a way, given up, too much authority to these agencies, which think of themselves as independent, because the ultimate constitutional control over foreign policy and law enforcement rests in the president's hands. And as your question suggests, Troy, the idea that you know one arm of the executive branch, the FBI, would be investigating the other head of the FBI, the executive branch, the president. Who's in charge of them for a foreign policy position right there what they're investigating trump allegedly for is that he's too friendly to russia that he's a tool of russia i i i dis- i would disagree with that position that that we should be friendlier with russia but that's president trump's decision to make he is a president and he's in charge of foreign policy it's not a crime for the president to decide our country must be friendlier with russia and we should dial back a lot of things we're doing that's hostile to that country or harming that country. That's, that's not something the FBI, as a subordinate of the president, should be investigating. No matter how bad
1: decision it is, I mean bad Uh, policy it is. I have – I take a very ominous view of this and (laughs) if you look at this morning or Friday morning's uh, column by Kim Strassel, uh, one of the points there is that Bruce when he was involved in this, knew that everything was dicey with respect to the Steele dossier as early as July of 2016 and that infected everything inside the administration. So now if it turns out that they decide after Comey is fired to investigate him, the question is why aren't they investigating Mr. Comey, uh, who himself was involved in at least some of these decisions since he was in charge of this particular organization. And instead what to do is to take an argument that they have to investigate for the uh, obstruction of justice charges is a way of giving it an enormous credit inside the FBI and using the situation in order to undermine it. So my view is that they certainly cannot do this unilaterally, certainly any subgroup. I don't even think they could do it unless they get the approval of the attorney general, and I don't think the attorney general could give an approval unless he talks this thing over with the president and says, go on. Uh, So I think, in effect, that this is a sign of very heavy partisanship. And what it does then is it colors everything that takes place thereafter, including the Mueller investigation, uh, because if the guys in the FBI were doing all of this stuff, which was illicit, and he takes over, and as in some degree of cooperation and collaboration with them, uh, then some of this information can seep through to the next generation. And as you know, I've been a vocal appointment, opponent, not of having an investigation, which looks into the influence on both parties, but having a crony friend and buddy. Of Jim Comey actually run this investigation. Having anybody who is associated with the FBI uh, to run an investigation of the FBI also strikes me as being a very serious mistake. And what this does is it shows you there's this kind of cumulative weight of everything that's coming on, which makes it extremely odd that the one thing is now regarded as sacrosanct is, in fact, the continuation of the Mueller investigation. I am not in favor politically of ending this thing because I think it will create more ramifications, but John and I, I think, both have the kind of view that the report is likely to come up to be a dud, and then the interesting question that's going to face Bill Barr is how much of this stuff does he make public Uh, because it turns out that if this thing is as comprehensive as it was and comes up with as little as it did, uh, then it – basically puts the entire operation from beginning to end in face. And on this particular issue, much as I have called, as everybody on this show knows, for Mr. Trump to leave office under his own steam as early as January of 2017, I have never thought that impeachment was in the cards on the basis of the record as I see it.
0: Well, you raised his name, Richard. So, uh, and John, I'll start with you. Let's talk about Bill Barr for a moment. Bill Barr, um, I feel like I have to explain him because there's so many things going on that people may not know who we're talking about. Bill Barr is currently going through the confirmation process to be the next attorney general, having been a former attorney general who served under George H.W. Bush. And the rap on Bill Barr from the left, anyway, the line they've been trying to push pretty much since his nomination was announced, was that you have to be wary of bill barr because bill barr has this expansive interpretation of executive power that is going to give president trump precisely the thing that he wanted and did not get from jeff sessions which is a head of the justice department who is essentially a hatchet man who will do his bidding and snuff out anything that doesn't comport with the president's wishes john most people listening to this probably don't remember the previous tenure of bill barr quarter of a century ago most people probably don't know much about him. Hel- help us unpack this accusation. How should we think about the prospect of Bill Barr as attorney general?
2: Uh, several points. You know, one is Barr is uh, consistent with the views he held when he was attorney general the first time, when uh, Democrats overwhelmingly voted to confirm him in the Senate. Um, uh, two, these are views that you would expect an attorney general to have. Uh, you know, Attorney generals are generally not the people in the government who say – eh, Congress can just create as many independent agencies as it wants and the president can't control them and most of the government should run under the direction of Congress and the president can't even fire or control any of the subordinates in the executive branch. Usually, the attorney general, no matter who's in the president, no matter which party controls the White House, is usually the one who defends the idea of the unitary executive, which is the idea that the president... Uh, is the chief executive. The executive power flows from him to the subordinate officers in government and he, to ensure the laws are faithfully executed, can control them up to and including firing uh, them at will. And then the the, the last point, it would be bizarre for a president to pick an attorney general who A, either had no views or B, views opposed to that president. Because if you buy the idea that the president's the chief law enforcement officer, he should be appointing people who share his views of the way the constitution and statutes interpreted and way laws should be enforced because actually it's the president who's responsible for those things, not the attorney general. The attorney general is the assistant or the, the aid to the president carrying out that duties. And then the last point is it's bizarre to think that, uh, that Barr shouldn't have any views on the Mueller investigation, the constitution of independent councils and so on because you know, the, the attorney general is not a judge. He's not there to be neutral. She's not being picked because they're going to serve for life and call the balls and strikes. The attorney general is always going to be someone with an opinion, and they should have an opinion. And the president should actually be picking them for opinions. If the Senate doesn't like it, Democrats in the Senate don't like his views. They can vote against them. But the idea that he should have no views of all, at all, I think, misunderstands what the job of the attorney general is. Richard, I let me ask you to – Go Let ahead. me
0: ask you to pick up on what John was saying there because I heard in the position that he was criticizing echoes of the way that we've heard Democrats talk about the Justice Department for the past couple of years, uh, essentially making the argument that the president is just supposed to stay out of the Justice Department's hair. They're, they're just there to carry out the law. It's this neutral endeavor and the very notion of the president being involved in the process – violates a kind of sacrosanct non political stature that the department is supposed to have. Is that a misunderstanding of how the Justice Department is supposed to function within the executive branch? I think it's
1: certainly an overstatement. Let me start with the following question. The president thinks that there's under-enforcement of the civil rights law. His name turns out to be Barack Obama. He appoints Attorney General Eric Holder, Loretta Lynch, or whatever, who kind of agrees with them. And he instructs them to say, ramp up the enforcement that goes through the Office of Civil Rights. I don't think there's anybody on the Democratic side when they agreed with the way in which the policy chain went down, would say, by God, the president is tampering with respect to what's going on. I think the tampering issue is important not with respect to policy and direction but it's importance with respect to intervention which could be very unseemly. Uh, so I am not thinking about the Flynn case in particular where I think the president was talking about one of his chief advisors but generally speaking I think it would be very unwise for the president or even for the attorney general or the deputy attorney general to get involved with individual charging systems that say have made through the New York office in a drug dealing case. Uh, by and large I think those things should be done by professional people in accordance with professional judgment. The difficulty here is if you intervene in one and you don't intervene in one another, somebody's going to say, why this one? Why not that one? You don't have that problem when it turns out that somebody like Obama says, I'm turning up the screws with respect to civil rights, and I'm doing it throughout 50 states in the United States. So I think in that sense, there's a kind of a split decision with respect to going on. John, I think, was stressing the first kinds of thing, namely the question about how these policies start to work and I think every attorney general has to have some kind of view and it would be nothing short of an amazing form of blindness or incompetence for a president to say look I'm a conservative but I'm my name is Donald Trump but you know what Eric Holder is available maybe I'll appoint him to be my attorney general and I will leave him alone because I'm not going to ask him about his views so but the Democrats are trying to do is a very different game they're trying to box in Mr. Barr in order to limit the degree of discretion that he has to act once he takes office by asking him for a variety of pre commitments, which they hope at the very least will be a political chip. My own view on that is what you should say is I'm listening to everything what you say. I will take into account arguments on all sides of all questions when they come up, but I'm not going to bind myself now to doing something in the future, even with a matter as sensitive as that associated with Mr. Mueller, because changed circumstances could influence these things, and I don't want to have to be seen as backtracking. I have to preserve uh, my open options, and you have to have some degree of trust in me. That's the speech that i I would have given. And if the Democrats decide to vote against that, as John says, turnabout is going to be by fair play. And when their nominees come up, they will get the same kind of what I regard as somewhat unprincipled grilling.
0: We haven't talked about the the Supreme Court yet in this episode, and it's a slightly awkward subject because everything on the Supreme Court coverage side is is being driven by – Justice Ginsburg's health right now, but I don't feel like we can avoid having this conversation. So, Justice Ginsburg, as we talked about on the last show, recently had surgery to remove a couple of cancerous nodules from her lungs. And we're told by her doctors that there's no remaining cancer and that she's on the men, but she's been absent from the court, uh, even though she's apparently been working from home. Um, and this is not unprecedented. I, I don't know the entire history, but I know in terms of recent history, you had Chief Justice Rehnquist when he had. I think it was thyroid cancer towards the end of his career, missed a lot more time than this. I think it was like 44 oral arguments that he wasn't present for and um, and he still wrote the opinions in a few of those cases. But it does raise an interesting question. We know partially because it's been brought up so often during the Trump administration about the 25th Amendment as regards the president in a situation where the president is incapacitated – and we don't even have to be talking about Justice Ginsburg here. Just imagine we had a Supreme Court justice who who fell into a coma. Do we have any mechanism that is responsive to a Supreme Court justice who's incapacitated?
1: No, not now. Um, a coma is not bad behavior. It's no behavior at all. In every sane organization, provision is made to remove people from office and to appoint a substitute. In this case, it would be crazy to say, well, we'll take some random judge from one of the circuit courts and put him there until uh, Justice Ginsburg, if all is well, returns to her particular position. I think in the end, what really has to be done is either to wait it out, and remember, Justice Rank was died in 2005, just after all of those absences taken place, or try to prevail upon her and say that she has to be removed. The difference is political. Um, when Rehnquist was to leave, he was going to leave at a time when it turns out there was a Republican president. Ms. Ginsburg happens to be a Democrat, rumor has it, and so this would basically <laughs> take a somewhat fragile Bumpy, five four majority and turn it into a six three majority, so all hell is going to start to break loose and she's not going to yield. I mean I wish her all the luck in the world with respect to this, but generally speaking when you see this, it is not an accurate medical diagnosis to say she has no cancer. It may in some sense be true that there's no detectable cancer, but there are so many other things that have been wrong with her over the last several years that you cannot treat that statement as a statement which says she's going to return to health. There are just too many other things that can intervene. She has multiple disorders, I am sure. And one of the great tragedies of geriatric medicine is the only way you can treat condition A is to aggravate condition B. And after a while, there's not enough reserve left in the tank to allow somebody to live against these kinds of inconsistent regimens.
0: John, Richard used the phrase there, all hell would break loose. And it's interesting, even when you talk to conservatives who obviously would love to have another seat on the court, when the prospect of Justice Ginsburg departing the court comes up, this is Justice Ginsburg departing during the Trump administration. They talk about the prospect with a almost a kind of dread. Uh, I think stemming from the fact that it feels like it would be a dicey proposition as to whether the country could take the ensuing fight. I mean, to what degree should we be worried about the dudgeon at which these fights are now taking place?
2: Really? Are, are there conservatives who are well, in New York are shying away from filling, uh, getting a sixth seat on the Supreme?
0: They're Court? not shying away, but I, no, I think yeah, there's the prospect for some civic uh, dislocation.
2: Really, they, they 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 think the confirmation process is a a convocation of the bright lights of our society. <laughs> so you're unbothered yeah, they're, by they're you're just a divide and conquer guy, John. You constitutional principles don't. <laughs> make me laugh. So just one one quick thing about what Richard said about uh, her absence. So I actually think the Supreme Court's bending over backwards to be generous to Justice Ginsburg right now because I don't think the normal rules allow a justice who's not physically present in oral argument or at the conference where the justices vote in, you know, together. On how to decide cases, I don't think justices who are absent are usually allowed to participate. So I think that they're doing everything they can uh, to make it easy on her, uh, because and it also might be because her vote doesn't really matter so much anymore. That there are pretty much five conservatives together on the court now. Uh, but getting to your bigger point, look, a of course replacing Justice Ginsburg is going to be a huge explosion. You know, for liberals. Brett Kavanaugh was like spring training compared to what they're going to do to whoever they nom- – who Trump nominates for the, the sixth seat. Trump actually I thought uh, – people, my liberal friends, all three of them didn't believe me. But Trump was – picking Kavanaugh was actually picking I think the most moderate person on his list of potential Supreme Court nominees. And if anything, they thought they were offering something of an olive branch to – the Senate Democrats, and you see what they did there. So I think, two, the second thing that's going to happen is Trump is going to appoint someone much, much more conservative than Kavanaugh, which is also going to provoke a fight. But three, that's why we have it. I think the idea that we should be a conservative should be afraid of this vacancy or or dread it. I think that's completely the wrong perspective. They have within their hands to really solidify the first conservative court since the New Deal, a court that will have People committed to originalism and really could start to turn back the administrative state and all the harm to the Constitution that Wilson and FDR had done to it. This is an unbelievable opportunity. They should be going into it, into this uh, battle, understanding all the great stakes, uh, the, 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 you know, all the great things are at stake here rather than you know say, oh, we wish this would happen two years from now or next year. I mean this is uh, – there are rare moments like this in constitutional history where things could really turn, and this is going to be one of them.
0: Let me ask you a question, John, about that potential consolidation because you clerked for Justice Thomas. It is interesting to me that we hear nothing about the prospect of Justice Thomas retiring within the next year or two, which one would think would at least be an option in his mind if oh. he was looking to avoid the same sort of scenario that Justice Ginsburg got herself into.
2: Oh, answering. no, no. There, there have been conservatives talking out there about – why can't Justice Thomas retire because he's just turned 70? Why don't you give us a seat where we could have a 50 year old take his place and extend you know, conservative control of that seat? Which I think is uh, crazy because I think it's far more important to have a reliable conservative person there for, say, 10 years than a Justice Kennedy who appears conservative when you confirm them but is somewhat of an unknown quantity in his um. 20, 30 years. The chances of error are so much. Higher. I'd rather have Tom but, – but no. But there have been people in uh, conservative circles who have been saying let's let's try to persuade some of the older conservative judges to retire now so we can fill
1: the seat. Well, two in a, a time row time would be, be time difficult. Time. I have a slightly different take on this. I think the first thing to note is that the previous Senate was quote-unquote fifty one forty nine, mm-hmm. But when you have one Joe Flake sitting – the Flake, whatever his name was from yeah. Arizona, it's really 50-49 with flake? a wild card. Um, He sabotaged a dozen very competent appointments by his insistence that uh, we have a confirmation of Mueller's ability to do this case, putting him over to the next term, which I regard as an unforgivable act of, of kind of individual arrogance and general institutional stupidity. It's now 5347, and this completely changes the Democratic strategy. I have no doubt what they were trying to do with Kavanaugh was to peel away one, maybe two of the Republicans get flaked to be silent on this, get somebody like Susan Collins to go over on the other side so as to be able to stop this thing, hopefully, they thought, until the Democrats took over the Congress the next time. This is a very different situation. It's the first year of the new um, congressional session, so there's going to be no election coming next November. It's the year after that. They're forty-seven in terms of the way which it goes. Uh, The prying strategy is going to have to switch four votes. It's not going to happen now that Flake is gone. And what's Trump going to do? I think what he's going to do in order to mollify people on the other side is he's likely to nominate A woman. Uh, The most likely nominee is probably Amy Barrett who has an extremely high um, reputation, Um, but I I think one can say with a great deal of confidence there are at least five or six very competent female appellate court judges in the mix right now, and he might decide to go with somebody who's a little bit less known, um, who doesn't have what he thinks is the sort of unpleasant memory of the run-ins that they had previously, but I don't think there will be the same kind of uproar uh, that there was the last time, even though the Democrats may be more upset about it because if they make a terrible stink and they engage in personal vendetta, it will compromise them for the 2020 election. And remember, there are many of the Democrats in the Senate, Camilla Harris and Miss Gilligrand and so forth, all of whom... Uh, would like to see presidential, and they're not going to sound presidential if it turns out they go wildly over the top and alienate a group which is actually critical to their success, which are sort of centrist Republican women who do not like perhaps the rather ugly behaviors of Donald Trump from time to time, but will not stand, I think, for the kind of vilification uh, that was given of uh, Kavanaugh, especially if it turns out that the next nominee is a relatively centrist conservative uh, Republican woman.
0: So let us conclude today with a story tailor made for John Yu. This is Finally a... enough to talk
2: about Roman
0: <laughs> Rivers. This is this is the ballad of one Curtis Bruner, a man who got locked in the bathroom what? of a Burger King in Portland, Oregon, which Let us stipulate that being locked in a Burger King bathroom is bad under any circumstances, but being locked in a Burger King bathroom in Portland has got to be like something out of a Hieronymus Bosch painting. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, he's, he's stuck in there for over an hour. He's pleading for help. The employees pass him a fly swatter under the door and tell him to try to jimmy the lock. That doesn't work. He cuts himself in the process. He says that the employees at this point are outside the door laughing. So then a locksmith comes, gets him out. And the manager tells him that they will give him free food for life to compensate him for his trouble. Now, this is just in mid-December. This is only a month ago. But after a few weeks, they stop comping him because apparently a a regional manager puts the kibosh on him. So Curtis Bruner is now suing Burger King for the value of the foregone meals. And the calculation provided by his lawyer is that – one burger meal a week at $7.89, I don't know whether inflation over this period enters into the equation or not, for the remaining 22 years of his life. And they actually, they actually literally shaved five years off of the <clears throat> actuarial table based on the weekly burger consumption. Adds up to him being owed $9,026.16. John, does he have a case? You
2: mock me, sir. You mock me. <laughs> One, first, of course, I would willingly, willingly lock myself into a bathroom at Burger King or McDonald's to get Lifetime McRib. It's not even a hard question. Ah, uh, John's I, not a I, 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 I suspect whether he locked himself in the bathroom to get the free meals. Number two, I think I find these calculations completely off. First of all, if you could have as much McDonald's food as you want, who would only go there once a week? You got to calculate four or five times a week. I mean, come on! I mean, once a week is way undercounted. So I think it's worth way more than nine thousand bucks. I think his lawyers are doing him a disservice here. But third, does he have a uh, contract? So this is an interesting legal question. I, you know, Richard's much more expert in this than I am, but I think he has a contract. I think. You know he's be, he was you know contracted so as not to sue for damages for whatever harm he had he suffered from being locked in that terrible Burger King bathroom and instead he accepted a deal from the head of the Burger King franchise there for lifetime food and now Burger King's breaking his contract made by one of its employees one of its agents I think he's got a deal I think he's got a I think he's got a good deal and Burger King if they were smart
1: would start is giving him as totally much food as he wants right away for life for a, a very short right, life, essentially. This is a settlement of a case. The settlement of the case could be for immediate cash or for periodic payments of one form or another. It can be definite or it can be indefinite depending upon the life. When you give a final judgment, the common law always reduces it to a fixed lump sum. Uh, $9,000 here. Uh, I don't think it's the kind of thing that's going to throw Starbucks into bankruptcy. I regard their effort to fight this. Perfecting. It's one of these Perfecting. public relations blunders of which they, like everybody else, seem to be be famous, but I think it's a perfectly appropriate note to end by saying that affirming this particular version is basically affirming the sanctity of the common law, uh, which all modern judges ought to do.
0: <laughs> I've, John, I'm very, very surprised by your response because it has long been my assumption that your role on this show is underwritten by an illicit sponsorship deal with McDonald's. So I figured you were just going to use the opportunity
1: to just crap all no, over Burger King. No, John's in favor of This, re- this restores the-, the goodwill that they have by honoring their promises. <laughs> I stand
2: up for the public
1: interest, which is the right
2: to have as much <laughs> fast food as you can humanly eat and buy. I, I, I would – if look, if – now let's all admit here, the three of us, if we suffered this harm and we were offered this, I'm curious how many times we go to Burger King a week. I I, would, I say five. I say
1: five. Oh,
2: Richard. no,
1: you can't do that. That's too much. <laughs> no, there's such a variety in the menu. You haven't been to Burger King lately. You could have well, a different... Uh, John, today. okay, John, let me put it this way. That would be a fraudulent settlement. <laughs> Why? I mean, how many people go to – he has a past record. You have to figure out how often. He <laughs>
2: well, they went. said they get as much as he wants for life. I get One day I get the Whopper. The next day I get the chicken tenders. I mean, come on. They even have salads. No, no no, John,
1: no, no, John. That's not Don't the Don't act like you measure. care about the salads. John, I thought you were a common lawyer. What happens is you have to project forward, not what he will do because there's a moral hazard component. You have to keep it at the same frequency, <laughs> variety, and price that it was in previous oh, times. Why? Why? They say. Because Because that's exactly what the way in which these contracts work. He certainly can't go in there, John, and say, I've got all my Boy Scout troop here. I'm now going to order 10,000 Burger King's hamburgers or Whoppers. Well, How much does he can eat? Um, Uh, uh, There's 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 actually real legal precedent on this this issue in the law of requirements contracts. No, no. This is interesting because what Burger King
2: wants him to do is eat as much as possible early so he dies. So that they don't have to pay out over –
1: No, 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 (laughs) no. This is a lump sum payment. They are indifferent to his death. The, that's the, one of the reasons. That's the workman's compensation system. John, I retract my praise of you as the avatar <laughs> of the common law.
2: Now, um, that's I'm a fine way to go the show.
0: On matters of high principle. The fantasy that this has engendered in my mind of Richard and John trying to co-manage a Burger King is something that really needs to culminate in a 30-minute sitcom. Um, all right, fellows, we can't improve on that. That is our show. Thank you both again for another great one. And thanks as well to our producer, Scott Emmergut, Stanford, for providing you guys with dueling dressing rooms, and our great listeners. Remember to help us out by rating the show at iTunes. Happy New Year's, everybody. We will be back with you again in February. Until then, the faculty lounge is officially closed.
1: Okay, guys, I have to run home. Okay. That was a good one. Okay, it was a lot of fun.
3: In every terrace the bats so she's much we are our rats right. The
0: conversation. Hello, and welcome to episode 118 of Ricochet's Law Talk podcast. We are coming to you as always from the Faculty Lounge of the Ricochet, Ricochet University. Ah, sorry, sorry. Okay, Ricochet. Okay, what the hell is Ricochet? I don't know. Uh, uh, Peds.